Good morning. morning. Esther, that was beautiful. Thank you. This morning we will open in song with number 544. There's a little bit of a um, printing error this morning in the bulletin, so the first song will go as printed, and after that it will be a little bit different. But please stand and join me for 544, Blessed Assurance. God, we praise thy name. Good morning, and a warm welcome to this morning's Winkler Burstower Mennonite Church worship service. A special welcome to guests who may have joined us this morning, as those who will join us via the week's broadcast. We trust that you will experience God this morning as he showers his blessing upon us as we bring him our praise and glory in song and spoken word. All hail the power of Jesus' name the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the great I am, who has pardoned our sin, who has blotted out our transgressions, and given believers assurance of salvation. For an opening passage of Scripture, let's turn to 1 John 4, verses 14 to 19. And it reads as follows. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent the Son as Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him, and he in God. 
And we have known and believed the love that God has for us. God is love, and he who abides in love abides in God, and God in him. Love has been perfected among us in this, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment, because as he is, so are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, because fear involves torment. But he who fears has not been made perfect in love. We love him because he first loved us. God is love, and if you accept him as Savior, he imputes that love to you. Shall we pray? Lord God, we come before your throne of grace and thank you for affording this time of worship. We thank you for a good night's rest, for rejuvenating us, and for providing us strength, security, and peace. We thank you for your Holy Spirit, which goes before us and guides us in making wise and right decisions. We pray for discernment, Lord, that we might know truth from the lie and deceit, right from wrong, good from evil, righteousness from unrighteousness, and that we would choose your ways. We pray for understanding that we would know our course of action beforehand, that we would not be trapped, coerced, or persuaded by the evil one. We pray for courage to overwhelm fear. Lord, we pray that you will reveal truth and remove scales of darkness and deception from our spiritual sight. God, we pray that you will guide us into a real and personal love relationship with you, that we might know you and do your will. Help us to be attentive to your word, and I pray that we would hear as you speak to us this morning. I ask these things in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Our next song this morning is number 343, O Jesus, I Have Promised. Let's stand and sing. We're going to sing all four verses. If you need to sit, because that's what you need, go right ahead.
song is not in your hymnals. It is an insert in your bulletin. And it is entitled, I Must Tell Jesus. And we will also sing all four verses of this.
Thank you for coming to this side. I was debating going to that side, but then I thought, then you're quite right behind the piano, and then I can see you anyway. So thank you for coming. Oh, it's so good to be in the house of the Lord again to worship together. I'm glad. Do you remember what Pastor Victor talked about last Sunday? So, yeah, different parables. Different parables, yes. He talked about how Jesus taught the people about the kingdom of heaven and how it is not just way out there somewhere, but it's here right among all of us. So, do you think that ordinary people like you and me can be part of the kingdom of God and help to build it? I think so too. I have thought a lot about that this last week. So, I want to ta- tell you a story about an, just an ordinary girl that made a big difference. Have you ever heard of the country called Zion? You know what? It was strange to me too until I read a book called The White Angel of Bangkok. In that book, it talks about a girl who made a big difference in the country of Zion, but it isn't called that anymore today. Today it's called Thailand. Let's see how that change came about. You know, in 1834, on November 5th, a girl was born in Cavernon, England. Just an ordinary girl, but her father was in the government's employment. So one day they sent, the government sent her father to do some work in India. So her father and mother went, but she couldn't go along. So she was sent to a relative who was operating a private Christian girls' school. And there she learned to appreciate the Bible. She learned a lot about the Bible. Also, lots of hymns and singing. And she learned to read and write. But she missed her parents, and she always was looking forward to the day when she would go to India to see her parents again. When, when her parents left, she was six years old, and when she was 15, she took a ship and sailed, sailed to India. Here I have the name of the town she was born in, Carnarvon, England. So then she sailed to India. Oh, was she glad to be reunited with her parents. Some years later, she married in India. Her husband also was employed with the government, and they sent them to Singapore and Malaysia. Oh, well, you know what? I'm forgetting something here. I was going to show you where England is. This is kind of very small, but England is there, and on the west side, that's where she was born. So then she sailed around to India, and from India she was sent to, she and her husband were sent to Singapore. There they worked, and one day when her husband came home, as he entered the house, 
he had some kind of a heart attack or stroke or whatever. He just fell over and was dead. Oh my, that was very hard for Anna. Now she was there with two children and all alone, and there were no, was no help, so she had to see how she would be staying alive now with her two children. And since she had had a good education at the, the place where she stayed when her parents went to India, she thought she could do a school. So she started a school for the children of all the English soldiers that were in Malaysia. And she did well. But you know what? Those soldiers very often forgot to pay. And she was in need. She trusted God. She prayed. And then she got a letter. She opened it. She read it. She read it again. She couldn't understand. But you know what? The king of Zion over there had heard about her school. He wanted his children and his wives, he had many, to learn English and be well educated. So he had sent a letter to Anna from Zion. He had sent it to ask her if she would come and teach his children and wives English. He wrote, teach them English, sciences, and literature, but nothing about Christianity. We Buddhists, he said, we know about truth, and we know about virtue, and we don't need another religion. Anna prayed about this, and then she decided that's where she needed to go. So she sent her seven-year-old daughter to England to a boarding school, and her five, six-year-old son, Louis, she took with him. So then she sailed from Singapore to Zion to the city of Bangkok. There we go. Bangkok was a big city. And the captain of the ship said to her, I don't like it that you're going here. Whoever goes into Bangkok doesn't come out again. It's an evil city. And as they arrived, she said to her son, Louis, kneel down, let's pray. And they prayed, God, protect us in this city. It's strange, and we don't know how it will be. So that's what they did. They prayed, and they trusted God. At the king's palace, she met the king, and he told her what to do, teach. And then on top of that, you are supposed to help me with all my right writing letters to other officials or so in English and in French. That was a big job. But she did what the king said. And as she was teaching his children, she used textbooks that very often had Bible verses in there and pictures. So she always was careful to explain the Bible verses well. And she also told Bible stories in her teaching. One day that came to the king. He heard what Anna was doing. He asked her to come to his office, and he said, Did I not tell you not to t teach our children and our people about your Christianity? 
Yes, Majesty, she said, you did. But if you're teaching your people Siamese, and can you separate that from your Buddhist religion? That's unthinkable, he said. Well, she said, that's how it goes with my English teaching. I cannot teach English without mentioning Christianity. So he had to let it go because he appreciated her because she did so much for his family and for his, his whole household. So she continued on. And you know, he had two favorite children. One was Pai Ying, his daughter. She was his favorite, and she could ask for anything she wanted. She always got it. And she asked the king, well, she asked her teacher, Anna, to come with her to ask if she could have special drawing classes. The king said yes, because Pai Ying had said to her teacher, I love the pictures of your Jesus. Would you tell me more of him? So she always came to her teacher. Oh, yes, she had to ask permission to do, get the drawing classes, and, and the king said yes. So he provided with all, them with all the materials, and she, she could come to her teacher every time she wanted. She just jumped onto Anna's lap, and she said, tell me about your Jesus. And one day she said, you think your Jesus could love me just a little bit too? And Anna said, yes. And Anna knew that Faying had accepted Jesus because she, she just loved him and wanted more and more to hear of him. And then came a sad day. Faying got cholera. A lot of people in the palace got it. And she died. But before she died, Anna was called to her room, and Faying just embraced Anna and was so glad for the stories of Jesus that she had told her. The king and everybody, then she died, and the king and everybody else was so sad, and they prayed to Buddha. But Anna knew Faying needed no prayers from Buddha. Faying was safe in Jesus' arms in heaven. Then there was her brother, Chula Lankorn. He also had a very kind heart. He was a little bit older than Faying, and he was supposed to be the king once King Mongkut would not be there anymore, once he would die. He also learned very special from Anna. Anna also noticed how badly the slaves were treated from, from the king and the other rich people. And wherever she could, she would go and help the slaves. Some were thrown into jail, and she took her own money, bribed the guards so that she could visit the slaves, and then she went to the king, and she said, it's wrong what you're doing. The king didn't like that very well. He said, you're more involved with politics than with teaching. But she never was scared about that. She kept on helping and helping. So the king started to call her my great difficulty. But you know what the people in the city called her? They called her 
the white angel of Bangkok because she went about helping and helping everywhere she could. And that was not unnoticed by this young son either, Chula Longhorn. And he said once to Anna, you know what? Someday, when I will become king, I would like to rule a country that is free. I think we will change Zion to Thailand, which means free. So Anna told him quite often what, what she was doing for the poor people. After five years of teaching, Anna's health wasn't so good anymore, and she decided this was it. She was not going to teach any longer. She had to return to England. So she told the king. The king was very sad that his great difficulty was leaving, and so were all the people in the palace and the people in the city who knew her. They were so sad that she was leaving. She said her goodbyes and sailed back to England. The following year, King Mongkut passed away. But his son was only 15 years old. He couldn't be king yet. But he was being preparing for that. When he was 20, he became the king. And you know what? The first thing he did, which he didn't like, and his teacher Anna had found very difficult to see, was the servants of the king always had, when they came to the king, they had to come on their knees and on their elbows and be like that before the king. And the first thing he did, he said, no people have to be on their knees before me anymore. People can walk straight before me. They can bow in recognition that I am their king, but that's all. And then slowly and surely, he passed laws that there would be no more slaves. And then he also helped missionaries to come to Thailand. He helped them with schools and hospitals and made religion free so that everybody could become a Christian who wanted. He himself never became a Christian. He stayed a Buddhist. But 30 years later, he went to England. He found his former teacher and he thanked her for what he had done, she had done in his life, and it had done a lot for the country. An ordinary girl did what she had to do, but always true to the Word of God, and it made a big difference. So we want to make that a, our aim to always read the Bible memorize scripture, and then do what it says in our lives. It makes a big difference. So the Bible verse for today I have, I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Psalm 119 verse 11. From young on it's important that we hide God's words in our heart because it makes a difference. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word, and we thank you that you guide us when we trust you. 
Help us to be in our in your word today and during the week and keep us safe. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. Thank you for that children's story, Anna. Great thing ha- things happen when people are faithful in little things. And thank you for the hearty music. Let's take our bulletins and uh, turn to the activities and concerns of the church. This week at uh, WBMC, Tuesday is a women's prayer group and Wednesday afternoon Bible study on Revelation. Missionaries of the week are K&K. Look at the Life Church announcements on worship services, donation receipts, and church mailboxes. At Bethel, uh, at Boundary Trails Health Center, Olga Friesen and Abe Suderman. And Jim Brown is at Swan Lake Hospital. Remember to pray for these families, and especially Abe and Olga. Uh, expression of sympathy. Willie Elias passed away Thursday, January 20th. A private service was held. He is a brother to Mary Swatsky. Take note, uh, Men's and Ladies Sunday School is canceled for this morning. Uh, Wednesday Bible study will proceed as planned. Uh, take note of those people selling, celebrating birthdays. And community events. Pemina Valley Bible Camp is looking for board members. For anyone interested, take note of the announcement. And Salem Home Ladies Auxiliary are having a Valentine's Day event to support the Dementability Program at Salem. Again, see the announcement. Also look at the leaflet in your uh, bulletin uh, about a family fun day at Pemina Valley Bible Camp on February 6th from 2 to 7 p.m. I'm sure Jessica Siemens from our congregation will welcome you as she works there. As you may or may not know, we finished three days of church planning sessions yesterday, and we compiled a lot of information. Our next steps will be to debrief and disseminate that information, and then look ahead to determine the path forward. We will keep you, the congregation, informed of the next steps. Uh, Shall we pray? I should maybe get the ushers to come forward first. Lord God, we enter your gates with honor and glory, thanksgiving and praise. We cast our cares on you, knowing that you will give us rest. We trust in your perfect, trustworthy character, for your mysterious works are beyond our comprehension. Lord, where we have fallen short as individuals, as individuals or as a congregation, forgive us and help us to fulfill the purpose and plan for which you have created us and designed us to serve. Lord, we thank you for your faithfulness, and we pray that you would lead, guide, and direct us as we ponder our future direction. Help us to obey your precepts, statutes, decrees, judgments, and commandments, for they are not loathsome. Lord, we pray for lost souls that this day would be the day of salvation, that they would be lifted out of their bondage and despair, and that they would receive spiritual sight and enter into a relationship of love with you, and that we as Christians would surround them and support them. Lord, we pray for our missionaries, and particularly K&K. We pray that you would place a protective hedge on their families and give them boldness, courage, and perseverance to minister to the lost and unbelieving. Provide spiritual wisdom. We pray that you would care for 
Our members, Abe Suderman and Jim Brown, who are hospitalized, and particularly Abe and Olga Friesen and their family, as they go through this deep valley, meet them in their place of need, be their God of understanding, and present them the peace and comfort that only you can give. Be the God of comfort and peace to the Willie Elias family and Mary Sawatsky as they deal with the death of a loved one. We pray that you would meet the needs of our community, and particularly for the family of the young man who tragically lost his life in a snowmobile accident. Lord, we pray for sound minds and judgment for those in authority over us, political leaders, elected officials, bureaucrats, judges, and the judicial system, and we pray for their salvation. We pray for our pastors and their families, protect them, direct their paths, and give them leadership to carry out our vision for us as a body of believers. We thank you for the gifts and ties that continue to flow from your hand. May you multiply them, and may they continue to serve the activities and ministries of this Church and the greater Christian network. We thank you all for all the people serving in this morning's worship service. We ask your blessing on them. Anoint Pastor Dean as he expounds your word on the topic, How to Overcome Temptation. May we be willing to listen, hear, and act on that word. For we ask it in the name of Jesus the Christ. Amen. If you have your Bibles with you, please turn with me to Matthew 4, verses 1 to 11. 
As Pastor Dean will be uh, teaching us this morning on how to overcome temptation, Matthew 4, verses 1 to 11, look at how Jesus uh, handled temptation. So the heading of this section is the temptation of Jesus. So Matthew 4, verses 1 to 11. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the desert to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, he said, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, It is also written, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give to you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him, and the angels came and attended him. Thus far the reading of God's word. Good morning. It's good to be in the house of the Lord. Amen. In his book, Surprised by the Voice of God, Jack Deere tells this story that I have adapted and shortened. Alone and penniless, she wandered through South Texas town of the 1940s, finally getting a job caring for an elderly man. The pay was pitiful, but at least she had the security of a place to sleep and food to eat. Myra was a social outcast. She and her husband had recently been divorced. Although he was prosperous, he refused to give her any money. In addition, her parents had died when she was an adolescent, so she had no one to turn to help for. Myra had thought that the things, that things couldn't get any worse, but she was wrong. This elderly man had an alcoholic son who made sexual advances towards Myra. She continually resisted him until one day he raped her. She felt humiliated and decimated. She was tempted to take her life, but she didn't. She had thought that God was angry with her and that he had, had, he had abandoned her. Now, if things couldn't get any worse, they did, because now she was pregnant with this drunken brute's son. She felt, so, she felt this was so unfair, and she was tempted and planned to kill the baby, but her doctor would not cooperate with her. So she planned to do it without his assistance. In the spring afternoon of 1943, as she sat on the back porch of the home where she worked, thoughts of suicide ran through her mind. 
However, before she tried, she prayed. Myra looked up to heaven and cried out, Lord, I am carrying this child and I don't know what to do. She never really was sure if she heard an audible voice or not, but it was, however, as clear as any voice she had ever heard, God said to her, have this baby, it will bring joy to the world. Those two short divine sentences dispelled all thoughts of suicide and abortion. She was convinced that God would give her a baby girl whom she would call Joy, for according to God, this baby girl would bring joy to the world. On October the 9th, 1943, Myra brought her baby into the world in the charity ward of St. Joseph Hospital in Houston, Texas. Things began to go wrong immediately. Myra almost died in childbirth. The baby turned out to be a boy and not a girl, as she had thought. And the next few years were not easy for Myra and her son. They were often separated, and the boy was left in foster's homes. Over the following years, the son showed no promise to fulfill his heavenly destiny of bringing joy to the world. He did become a Christian in his early teen years, but showed no promise for Christian work. In fact, he was so incredibly shy, he simply could not speak in any kind of public setting. The summer after the young man graduated from high school, he went to a revival meeting. And on the last night of the revival meeting, a Friday night, he heard God calling him to preach. It was clear, it was a clear and audible voice, although no one else would confirm it. They all knew this young man was not gifted for any sort of public ministry. On Monday, he went back to work at the chemical plant. Most of the men who worked at the plant were not Christians. Their conversation was filled with profanity, dirty jokes, and sexual references about their wives and mistresses. While this talk had never bothered the young man before, what happened to him on the previous Friday night made him made all the obscenity unbearable. As he listened to the men on the job and then at lunch. There he jumped up on the wagon and of the flatbed trailer, and the young man was overcome with compassion for these workers who did not know Christ. Suddenly, without realizing it, he was there beginning to preach to these men. He said, I am a boy out here trying to learn how to be a man. And all you men are teaching me is filthy talk. Think filthy, live filthy, and be filthy. Men, I wouldn't talk about a dog the the most or the way most of you talk about your wives. But God loves you and he gave Jesus to die for you. This was the introduction of the young man's first sermon. Pipe fitters, insulators, craftsmen, and their helpers 
sat stunned as they listened to these words. As the young man continued to preach, the conviction of the Holy Spirit swept over them. While he, when he stopped speaking, no one said a word, just hung their, he- their heads and shuffled back to their jobs. And without realizing, a revival had begun in that chemical plant that day. Over the next few weeks, the young man had the privilege of leading many older workers to Christ. It became apparent to all that he was called to be an evangelist. Decades later, the young man had been responsible for leading millions of people to believe in Jesus as their Lord and Savior. And his name was James Robison. Close quote. Myra, James Robison's mother, found herself in a horrible situation, and she was tempted, first to abort the child, second to take her life along with the child. However, she overcame her her temptations by crying out to the Lord. And we might not be in those same circumstances, but we all have been in circumstances of temptation. And when we come to those positions, the only way that we will ever overcome is when we cry out to God, when we cannot handle it ourselves, and we cannot make those decisions by our own strength or our own will. And that's why we need desperate God so desperately. This morning we want to continue our message series in James, Encouragement for the Race in Life. And today's message is how to overcome temptations. How to overcome temptations. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are bombarded with all sorts of temptations, large and small, however they may be. They come to us, and sometimes we end up saying yes because we have not prayed. We have not prepared beforehand. Help us to understand it is a time of preparation each morning as we bring before you everything that we will do the coming day. Help us to realize when we surrender our lives to you that you will work in us and that you will protect us and you will give us your strength. Help us understand now, Lord, even more how we can overcome all temptations with your strength and power. Amen. Before we go any further, let's look at the background of this portion of Scripture. Trials and testings and temptations are all tied together. Trials and tests come from outsides, and temptations come from the inside. I want to say that one more time. Trials and tests come from the outside, and temptation comes from the inside. And when God sends trials and tests, they are sent for the purpose of maturing the believer in him. Temptations are directed at the inside of the person comes from the devil and to our fallen nature. Satan's purpose is to tempt us so that we will become alienated from God. And how true that is, for when we fall and when we sin, what's the first thing that we do? We don't want to talk with God because we know we have failed him. And so we even keep away. We even think to ourselves, well, I'll just stay away. Maybe in two or three days I will pray again and maybe God won't be so angry with me. 
Here is the key to understanding trials and tests. Without them, the believer will never come to maturity. He won't or she won't. Without trials and tests, we can't come to maturity. Wouldn't it be nice if we could just get rid of them and be mature without them? But God uses them in our lives. However, we must be careful that when tests do come, we rely on God's strength and wisdom, lest we turn our tests into temptations and fall. An example is when framing a house, and a framer is required to put a set amount of nails into the building. When the crew is running short on nails and there's not enough time to pick up more, there is a temptation to use only half the amount of nails and to get the work done. After all, nobody's going to see, nobody's going to look into the walls, nobody will know if you cut it short. Only the carpenters and their guilty conscience will know. Some years ago, I read an article about a hurricane that went through Florida. In one city, several blocks on homes were decimated except one house that was left standing. When they interviewed the house owner, the reporter asked why his house was still standing. He said that all the other homes that were built around were built by a contractor who only used half the amount of nails. He said, nevertheless, when he built his house, he built it according to spec, according to the way it was designed by the architect, and he put and used everything in it that was called for. There was no shortcuts that were made in his house. In the end, his house was standing amongst all the others that were left in rubble. When this contract had yielded to temptation, I bet you he thought to himself, I should have never done it, because you could only imagine the lawsuits that came afterwards. So we come to the first point on how to overcome temptation. Number one, don't be confused, verses 13 and 15. Don't be confused. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For I, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when by his own evil desire he is dragged away and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown gives birth to death. Close quote. There are two ways that a believer can be fused in these verses. The first is to think that God is tempting him, and the second is the failure to see the process and the consequences of yielding to temptation. First, God never tempts any of us but he does test us. He doesn't tempt, but he does test up, test us. God is too holy to tempt us. He hates sin. It cost God the ultimate price of sending his son to die in our place. So he does not want us to sin, and he does not want us to come against him. Since man is born with a fallen nature, he always wants to blame someone else for his sin. And Isn't that like all of us? We'd rather put the blame on someone else than take our responsibility. 
Therefore, why not blame God? Because God created us and he created everything. Obviously, he must be to blame and he put us into a situation and a predicament so we could be tempted. But that is not true and we are confused if we think God is tempting us. James offers a sharp rebuke to anyone who wants to blame God for their sin. God cannot be tempted by evil because God is holy. Also, God does not tempt anyone else. Second, many believers are confused about the process and the consequences of yielding to sin. Sin is not a single act as one would believe. It's not. It's not a single act. The process begins first with desire. God has given everyone desire, and we cannot function without desire. The world wouldn't be here without desire. The people wouldn't be here without desire. For example, the desire to eat is good because we would die of starvation without it. However, overeating or stealing that of uh, the things that we eat leads to sin. The desire to have sex is good within marriage, but outside of marriage, it is sinful, it is wrong, it is evil. Normal desires are not sinful, but they can turn evil into a temptation. And when mixed with the fallen nature, then all of a sudden, it turns disastrous. Sin also has deception mixed into it all the time. It has deception mixed into it. No animal will fall trap unless it, the trap is cleverly dis- disguised. It is even harder to catch a fox in a trap because they can smell the scent of a man who, put, who set the trap. And the fox knows and he will stay away. So an individual will take the trap and they'll put it in the manure pile for a number of days until the scent is so is taken away that no one else can smell it, especially the fox. And then you place the trap, you cover it, and then you put the bait on. And then no longer can the scent be smelled. Then when the trap is set and it is all done... The fox comes along and he is trapped. We must remember there is always good mixed in every temptation. And that, why, and that is why temptation has such an attraction. We just think to ourselves, if I had that, I would be satisfied. And sometimes that is true. If we had food, we would be satisfied. But rather than listen to God, we'd rather take it ourselves in our own way and do it our way rather than God's ways. We must remember, as I said, there is always good mixed in every temptation. Lot only saw the fertile land of Sodom, but he did not see the wretchedness of sin that dwelt there. And he chose what he thought was good, but really it was evil and temptation abounded there. 
David had seen the if David had seen the consequences of his sin with Bathsheba, he probably would have never have went where he went. But he didn't see it, and he thought it would be hidden, but it was all exposed. The next step that takes place is disobedience. Again, desire has set the stage, and conception gives birth to sin when we act. When we act, conception takes place. By his evil desire, a person is dragged away and chooses to do what is wrong. And the scriptures say dragged away because once the choice is open to take the first bite, to take the first step, you are dragged all the way screaming the other way and not being able to stop. Because it is so strong. Because you have given up control of your will at that time. The answer is to say no from the beginning. Without taking the first bite. Without taking the first step. In the 1980s when the drugs were rampant in America. It was Nancy Reagan who coined the word just say no. Just say no, and it worked to help cut down drug addiction. I remember the advertisements in the 1970s and the 1980s. If you can remember some of them, I don't know who put them on, but it must have been the government, and it was in regards to drinking alcohol and driving. And it only said this, just say no when you're offered. Just say no. You don't have to take it. You don't have to decide to do it. You can say no, and you can walk away. After this disobedience, death takes place. When the baby of sin is born and matures, it gives birth to death. Isn't that a strange way to say things? When the baby is born, sin, birth, death takes place. Death takes place. Death does not come immediately. The consequence of sin either shows up in a person's future or when he stands before the Lord to give an account one day. An example is that that we talked about, the contractor who only used half the nails in the homes. It didn't come to fruit until one day the hurricane came and then it was revealed after they looked at all the evidence of the rubble that they could see that this contractor had only used half the amount of nails that he was supposed to use. The consequences of sin show up all the time. Achan's sin of taking the spoils of war didn't show up until Israel went to war and numerous peoples died on the battlefield. God was not with them because sin was in the camp. Our consequences always show up whether it's today or whether it's in a month, whether it is 10 years from now, or whether we stand before the Lord one day and we give an account for all the things we have done, whether good or bad, while we've been here. So the first step on how to overcome temptation is don't be confused about it. Know the consequences. Know what's going to happen. 
And there are dire consequences. The second step to overcome temptation, number two, don't be deceived. Don't be deceived, verses 16 through 17. We just finished talking about deception once again. James puts it forth. Don't be be deceived, my brothers, verse 16. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of heavenly lights. Who does not change like shifting shadows? God does not change. We just finished talking about deception in the first point, and now James tells the reader, don't be deceived. Not only are Satan lures deceptive, but our fallen nature can be, can't be trusted. We have a bend towards sin. And if Satan was taken out of this world, there's still enough sin in this world to send it to hell a thousand times over. We can blame the devil for everything, but in fact, we are tempted and we are led away by our own inward evil desires. And many times Satan doesn't even have to tempt us. But we would like to blame someone else. We would even like to blame Satan and say, well, he made us do it, but he doesn't make us do anything. We choose all the time because we are volitional creatures. Satan lured Eve into taking the bite of the forbidden fruit by convincing her that God was holding out on her. He's holding out. If he really loved you, he would let you do what you wanted. And true that is with kids because they will tell their parents, if you really love me, you will let me go and be with my friends and do what they are doing. But that is far from the truth. Listen to what Genesis 3, chapter 2, verse, uh, th- chapter 3, verses 2 through 4 tells us. The woman said to the serpent, we may eat the fruit from the tree in the garden, but God did say, You must not eat of the fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it, or you will die. You will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil, close quote. Satan twists everything that God says. And he paints God as one who doesn't love her. If God did love her, he would give her what she wanted. When the devil tempted Jesus, the devil used the same logic on him. If you are the son of God, do whatever you want and God will intervene and he will save you. The implication is that God doesn't love you if you can't do what you want. That's the implication. James points out in verse 17 that God is good. Listen again what verse 17 says. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows God is constant. He never changes. He is always the same, even though he may not give you what you want because what you want will be detrimental to your life. 
he will say no because he loves you. He will not say less because he loves you. Warren Worsby put it in a beautiful way when he says this, the goodness of God is the great barrier against yielding to temptation. Since God is good, we do not need any other person, including Satan, to meet our needs. It is better to be hungry in the will of God than full outside the will of God. Once we start to doubt God's goodness, we will be attracted to Satan's offer and the natural desires within will reach out for his bait. Close quote. When we doubt God's goodness, we will go to another place. And unfortunately, it's to the bait of Satan. Now we come to the last step on how to overcome temptation. Don't be, don't be dependent upon self, but on God. Don't be dependent upon self, but on God. Verse 18. Listen closely to this verse. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth, that we might be the kind of first fruits of all he created. Close quote. James tells the reader that they are born from above. We've been born from above. We've been changed. We've been transformed. In other words, they possess a divine nature. No, not that they are gods, not that we are gods, but we possess a divine nature, a nature that has been transformed and likened unto Christ. No longer are we subject to Satan's will and lures, but with God's strength, they can say no to Satan's bait. With God's strength, you and I can say no to Satan. God can, God can even allow them to see the trap, or believers to see the trap and the consequences of yielding to sin. And ask God, show me what are the consequences before I do this, whatever I'm going to do. And it might be small, or it might be big. First, the believer is born of the Spirit and of the Word. It is not man's choice, but by God's decision. And that's how we are born again. If God is living in us, we can say no to sin because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. We have the strength because we have God within us. Too often the believer thinks he has no choice in the matter. And too often you and I think we have no choice. We're presented with two choices, now choose. And so we think that we have to choose one to make others happy but we don't have to choose anything to make anyone happy. We only choose what makes God happy. Too often we think that we have to choose. Once again, I quote Warren Worsby as he gives clarity to this subject. He says, It is this experience of the new birth that helps us overcome temptation. If we let the old nature from the first birth take over, we will fail. 
We receive our old nature, the flesh, from Adam. And he was a failure. But if we yield to the new nature, we will succeed, for the new nature comes from Christ. And he is the victor. This week, we can say no to sin. This week, we can spend time with the Lord in prayer this mo- in the mornings and say, God, show me my day. And Lord, show me how to make the decisions between right and wrong. Show me when it is just so slight and it's hard to make that decision and God will show us. And then ask God to give us the strength to make those decisions. For we have a new person in us and that is the one who Christ has changed and given us eternal life. I close with this story of Kurt Cameron, who played Mike Seavers on Growing Pains. Many of you can remember the sitcom from the 1980s. It was one of the top sitcoms. Kurt Cameron was a young man in his early teens. He quickly rose to the place of a teen idol in many people's eyes. He made a tremendous amount of money, and he had temptations from all over. A matter of fact, he says in one of his interviews that he could not understand. He first was an atheist, and he didn't believe in God. And then as he began to look around at Hollywood and everything, he said, I made all this money and there was temptations all around me to do the things that were wrong. And I knew that this was wrong, but I didn't know if there was a God. And he said one day, and his parents were not Christians, one day he prayed and he said, Lord, I don't know if you're out there, but if you are, I ask for you to forgive me of my sins and to show yourself to me. And he said his life was changed already. He played, as I said, um, Mike Seavers on this program. And there at the end of the season, there was another young lady that he was acting with. This individual was a strong Christian. Her name was Chelsea Noble. And not only did he date her, but he married her. He goes on to tell his story of what happened and how God worked in their lives. He said Chelsea was adopted. And she was this close to being aborted. But her mother made the choice to give her up to adoption. And she was adopted by Christian parents. And now she was a strong Christian. And, of course, when she got together with Kirk Cameron, they decided after they were married that they were going to adopt 
children. They adopt four children who were all going to be aborted. And after they adopted all four children, God worked in their lives, and she gave birth to their own two children. Since then, Mike and her have grown to love each other, to serve the Lord. Mike has played in many Christian movies of Left Behind, Fireproof, and many others, but his life was changed. And he concluded with saying this, With temptations, it does two things to us. It either hardens us towards God or softens us towards God. For me, it softened my heart to reach out to God and to accept his salvation. Temptation, what is it going to do to you and I? Will it harden us towards God, or will it soften us towards God so that we will walk in harmony with him? Before we sing our last song, I know it was announced that um, we won't be holding men's Bible study this morning. But um, let's meet anyways. Let's meet in the room off of the sanctuary here. And there will be also a ladies' Bible study, which will also be led. So let's meet, and, um, and it will be good. Thank you, Dean, for a good message. The song we're singing is number 578 in your hymnals entitled, I Need Thee Every Hour.
to stand for the closing of the benediction. The Apostle Paul, writing to the Philippians, says this, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice, and the God of peace will be with you. Heavenly Father, we realize that you give us strength to live the Christian life. You walk with us. And when we have our minds set upon you, when you are our stay and our anchor, you go before us and we remain secure. Help us, Lord, to surrender each and every day to you. And Lord, we pray that as we go our separate ways, may you give us the grace and the strength to live a holy life surrendered unto you. For this we pray in Christ's name. Amen.